0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning for our um, sermon to 1 Samuel 9. Last week we took a little bit of an aside to consider the relationship between Christians and government as it was the 4th of July weekend and that's the time where such things are on our mind. We went to Romans 13 for that. This week we're back in 1 Samuel 9. And uh, the title of the sermon, Mercy Above Measure. Mercy Above Measure. In First Samuel 8, we sought to understand the deep rejection that Israel had observed, the rejection of God that Israel had observed. And we explored two theological concepts that I, I hope, Lord willing, added clarity to the nature of God's intentions with His people. We were able to bring the concepts very close to home, the concepts of the permissive will of God and of God's election, because though the nature and the privileges of the church are indeed different to that of Israel, um, we both share the same election in Christ, and God is an unchanging God. And as is common within the scope of Israel's history, Israel's actions become our instruction. Their failures become our warnings. Their victories become our lessons. In 1 Samuel 8, we saw a cautionary tale against God's people knowingly rejecting God's will, God's plan, in deference to our own ideas, to our own priorities. When we know the will of God and we reject the will of God because we believe we have a better idea in mind, we have a better um, idea of what is best for us. These historical accounts don't just teach us about ourselves, however. They teach us so much about God as well. We have begun to see God's response to a rebellious people. He gave them what they requested, but not before carefully warning them about the inevitable negative consequences of their poor choice. They ignored His warning. They chose rather to suffer the consequences in order to get what they want. And Israel is not the only one that does that. Matt and I were talking before Sunday school about that analogy I even brought it up in Sunday school about the analogy of Christians or humans as sheep Jesus um, would call his people his sheep in the Old Testament in Isaiah the scriptures say all we like sheep have gone astray sheep are somewhat obstinate silly rather thoughtless creatures They go their own way even when it's not in their best interest. They put themselves in circumstances where if they don't have outside help, if they don't have a loving shepherd, they will die. Because they're just not very smart. They need care. They need guidance. They need something looking out for them. Israel is not the only group of God's sheep who weigh choices and consequences and come to the conclusion, misguided though it may be, that, the, that our sin with its consequences is still more favorable than obedience. What we're going to see today, however, from 1 Samuel 9, is that even when we wander outside of God's perfect will, even when we like sheep go astray, our God is still merciful, patient, gracious, and very loving in His dealings with us. In fact, for those in this room who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, placing your full faith and trust in the power of His death and His resurrection to save you from your sins and to save you from your sin, you can fully expect that God will always deal with you in a way that is merciful and gracious because you're His child and our loving Heavenly Father will do what is best for his child. In fact, this beautiful promise is made in Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the Father of the Son in whom he delighteth. We can know that even in our times of rebellion, even when we wander, even when God is forced to chasten us for that rebellion to bring us back to Himself, what we can know on the authority of the Word of God is that even in those circumstances, it's not God's anger that's doing this. It's God's love that's doing this. It is as if in the circumstance that we might, many of us might relate to of a father. That when a father is forced to discipline his children, he's not doing so because he doesn't like them He's doing so because, in fact, he loves them. And the most loving thing a father can do for his children is correct them when they do wrong. Because a father knows that correcting a wrong today and making a, bringing a child on the right path today is a far better scenario than allowing them to continue in their wrong and then one day a greater authority has to be the one to correct them. How much better a parent stop their child from stealing from the cookie jar when they're six then the police officer has to stop the, the man from stealing from the store when he's 30. How much better to spend a couple hours in your room for stealing the cookie than it is spending some time in jail for stealing from the store. A father in love chastens, and our Father in heaven does the same. The places God leads us even as the natural consequences of our own poor choices may not always be pleasant, but we can rest assured that they are always given to us as an extension of his mercy, his love, and his intention to form in us righteousness. With that in mind, we step into 1 Samuel 9 today, and we begin to see the aftermath of Israel's demand for a king. The chapter opens with an introduction to a man named Kish. In verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abael, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. The text tells us that this man Kish is of the tribe of Benjamin, and it follows his lineage back some generations. Now, Hebrew lineages, their genealogies. When you read a genealogy in the Scripture, you are regularly not looking at an unbroken line from father all the way back. Oftentimes, in Hebrew genealogies, um, there was there were big gaps, and this um, is is not. Um, it shouldn't throw us. It shouldn't confuse us. It shouldn't upset us. But we do need to know it's there because we can't always just trace the number of names and say, okay, that's how many generations from this person to this person because oftentimes in Scripture, the genealogies have gaps in them. And what they're doing here is they're, they're kind of hitting the highlights. They are, are giving sufficient clarity that a Jew who was reading this text would be able to take kish and connect him properly to benjamin so they would hit the highlights of the genealogy the most important names the most important people going back through the 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 lineage in order to for the hebrew mind to say yes in fact i have no doubt here that this man based upon his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather or maybe just his great-grandfather and great-great-great-grandfather i have no doubt that this man is of the tribe of benjamin and that is what is trying to be Proved here, and this is important because oftentimes we take the genealogies of Scripture and, and we try to trace them, and we do timetables and and these sorts of things, and all of that is good, but but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're looking at an unbroken line. Now, in this age, we have a bit of a benefit, though we can't look back now and say, okay, we can trace this lineage dogmatically from father to. Grandfather to great-grandfather to great-great-great-grandfather, what we do know is that the Word of God is inspired and inerrant. So when the Bible says that the man Kish was of the tribe and lineage of Benjamin, we don't have to question that. We see the, the genealogy, we appreciate those things, and they can even teach us things. But we don't have to wonder if it's true because the authenticity of the Scriptures is assured by God Himself. So the text tells us that Kish was a Benjamite and it also says that he was a mighty man of power. This idea, this phrase, the mighty man of power is found very regularly in the Old Testament and it describes men of renown. The Hebrew term is the gibor hayil and it doesn't just speak of men of power. It can speak of men of wealth. It can speak of men of influence or it can speak of men of military might. David's mighty men. If you recall the the teaching of David's mighty men, we'll get there a little later in 1 Samuel. They were all called Gibor Hail. They were men who were mighty men of strength in battle. They could fight many men. They they would conquer whole groups of men by themselves. They were mighty men. But the same word is used to describe a man like Boaz as well. Ruth's husband. And Boaz was not, uh, from Scripture at least, we don't know him to be a a fighting man, a warring man. We know him to be a man of influence and of wealth. And so in Bethlehem, he was a gibor ha'il. He was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of of power. And that was what this man Kish is as well. We don't know if he was a warrior. We know his son was a great big burly man. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he was a gibor ha'il. He was a great man of power. And as we consider Kish, we consider him to be this man of power and we consider him to be of the tribe of Benjamin. I'd like us to take just a moment and remind ourselves of something because it's going to come up a little bit later in our text. In Genesis chapter 49 verses 8 through 10, when Israel, the man Israel, Jacob, is on his deathbed in the land of Egypt His son Joseph has been restored unto him. He gives each of his children a blessing. And these blessings were not just um, words. It was prophetic in nature. He was telling them where each of them would stand in conjunction to one another and to God in the future. And Israel's blessing on Judah is found in Genesis 49 verses 8 through 10. And it says this. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Notice that Israel's blessing and promise was that the scepter would not depart out of Judah. It's highlighted there for you. The scepter would not depart out of Judah. The scepter was a sign of royalty, of of leadership, of rule. And what Jacob, Israel, is telling his son Judah here is that Judah was going to be the tribe, the man and his family through whom the kings of Israel would come. And in fact, he says that the kings of the the kingly lineage, that the rightful kings in Israel would not depart from the line of Judah until Shiloh comes. You'll notice in our King James Bibles, at least, that the word Shiloh there is capitalized. That's because the translators Uh, recognize something here and it's the same thing that Israel, the Jews have recognized and that as we look throughout interpretive history, all interpretations point to the reality that Shiloh here is is a person. Shiloh is an identity. The word literally means tranquility or peace and it's speaking of one who is going to come and that one is Jesus. That Jesus, He is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He is Shiloh, And so the scriptures tell us, Jacob said here that until the day that Shiloh comes, until the day that this one who would bring peace comes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah would be the tribe through whom God would provide the line of kings. And that will become important to us as we continue. Now, Kish is a Benjamite. Verse 2 tells us that his son's name is Saul. The scriptural description of Saul is very favorable. He's described as a choice young man and a goodly. He's described as him being um, goodlier than anyone else among the children of Israel. That from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. He was the prototypical man's man. He was big, strong, strong, Handsome, tall. He he was shoulder and above taller than anyone else. That's like Matt coming down and me standing next to Matt, or me standing next to Greg, or me standing next to Tim when Tim's here. And a lot of tall people in our church. Um, he, uh, my, my my head comes up to their shoulder. That that's the idea here. That that if you were to take a hundred men in Israel and you were to gather them all together and they'd be all within an inch of each other or so. It's, uh, uh, you know the, the, the ethnicity was fairly. Um, tight so there was, there was not a lot of variation there. But then you'd have Saul and his head would be poking above the rest. He was, just, he was a tall, handsome, big, good-looking guy. And that is Saul. In verse 3, we're introduced to the character of this man, Saul. We find in verse 3, And the asses of Kish, Saul's son, were lost. And Kish said to Saul, his son, Take now one of the servants with thee and arise and go seek the asses. So we know that Saul is a man who is trustworthy. Uh, His father trusts him to go and do this. Uh, He's obedient for he does indeed go and do it. And the scriptures tell us in verses 4 and 5 that Saul journeys through the area of Mount Ephraim to the south of his home, making a loop, looking for these animals, but with no success. Now, in that day, there was no telephone. Saul couldn't just get into his camel bag and pull out his cell phone and say, hey, I'm going to call dad and tell him that I haven't found the, 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 the animals yet and, and we're just going to take a couple more days. Hey, dad, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. No, the money's holding out okay. I'm just going to, just going to spend a couple more days looking for these things. I, I have no idea where they went. And, and Keish certainly couldn't call Saul and be like, hey, just want to let you know that we haven't found them yet on this end either. Um, so why don't you just keep looking? Or hey, they, they're home. I found them. Just come on home now. He couldn't do that. No cell phones, no pay phones, um, no, 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 service of communication as such. And so there would be a general timetable in Keisha's mind, right? As a father, he says, I'd like you to go out and I'd like you to look for these donkeys and, and they've been gone this long now, so I, I can imagine that, you know, they can't be too far away. So I would expect this many days for the journey. If, if, if you really can't find him and you have to uh, really look, then maybe a couple more days and he'd have a time period in his mind. Well, it would seem as though they were getting close to the end of that time period. And the scriptures tell us that they passed through Mount Ephraim, through the land of Shalisha, but they found them not. And they passed through the land of Shalim and they were not there. And he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they found them not. And when they were come to the land of Zeph, Saul said to a servant that was with him, come and let us return, lest my father leave caring for the asses and take thought for us. So the problem now is, okay, Saul says there's a timetable here. And if if we get too far past the timetable, well, obviously, my father loves me more than he loves his farm. So he's going to be concerned about me. And he's going to leave the farm to come and look for me. And that's going to throw everything off. And he's gone and the farm's not going to get taken care of properly. So, so I need to get home before my father gets so worried that he comes looking for me. So he's pointing himself toward home now. We need to get home. <clears throat> but his servant had another idea. And that idea is found in verses 6 through 10. Scripture is saying, he said unto him, Behold now, this is the servant speaking to Saul, Behold now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he saith cometh surely to pass. Now let us go thither, peradventure he can show us our way that we should go. Then said Saul to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is spent in our vessels, and there is not a present to bring to the man of God. What have we? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have here at hand a fourth part of a shekel of silver. That will I give to the man of God to tell us our way before time in Israel. When a man went to inquire of God, thus he spake, Come and let us go to the seer. For he he that is now called a prophet was before time called a seer." Then said Saul to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went unto the city where the man of God was. So they're, they're passing near where the seer is. And Saul says, we need to get home. We, we need to tell my father we haven't found them. And the servant says, well, let's just make one stop. There's, there's a seer. There's a prophet in this city. Maybe if we bring him a gift, he'll tell us where these donkeys are. He can point us in the right direction then we can go get him and we can get home with him. That sounds like a good idea. Saul says, well, I don't have anything to give him. It was custom in that day that you brought the prophet a gift. We don't have a gift. We don't have any more food left. What do we have to offer him? And the servant says, I have half shekel of silver here. Let's do that. Saul says, okay. I like this. This will work. This is good. Let's do that. And so they do. They go to find this seer. We continue reading in verse 11. And as they went up to the, the hill to the city, they found young maidens going out to draw water and said unto them, is this is the seer here? They answered them and said, he is behold, he is before you make haste now for he come today, came today to the city for there is a sacrifice of the people today in the high place. As soon as ye become into the city, ye shall straightway find him before he go up to the high place to eat for the people will not eat until he come because he doth bless the sacrifice. Afterward, they eat that be bidden. Now, therefore, get you up for about this time you shall find him. And they went up into the city. And when they were come into the city, behold, Samuel came out against them for to go up to the high place. And so we're seeing this conspiracy of circumstances here orchestrated by the Lord. Saul can't find his donkeys. Samuel, it's, it's the right time of day for him as he's going out to bless the sacrifice before they eat, to bless the meal. And Saul is heading up, Samuel's coming out, and they intersect. And we find in verses 15 through 17 that Samuel was expecting Saul's visit. Verse 15, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear a day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send thee a man out of the land of Benjamin." And thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry is come unto me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord spake unto him, Behold, the man whom I spake to thee of, this same shall reign over my people. So, Saul is coming up the hill. Samuel's coming out to go to the sacrifice. The day before, God had told Samuel there's coming a man out of Benjamin. Now as Samuel looks upon Saul and he's like, wow, that guy's really tall. And God says, that's the one. That's the one that's going to be king. Now as we read this, we read something very significant here. Significant enough that it will become the basis for our application today. God tells Samuel, this is the man who would come uh, to be king. This is God's choice. This is the king that Israel demanded. And this should indeed cause our ears to perk up because everything about Israel's request for a king was rebellious, was it not? Everything about Israel's request for a king was a collective heart of rejection of God as their leader. And here God is, having been rejected as their king. I know I've said this several times. If if my creation had rejected me as its creator and king, I would have just kicked it to the curb. Thrown it in the trash can, lit the trash can on fire. I don't know. It would not have been pretty. But God doesn't just say, okay, give him a king. God says, okay, I'm going to give them a king. I'm going to provide for them, even in the midst of their rebellion. We'll finish the review of our text, then we'll come back and we'll inspect that concept just a little bit more. Verse 18 we see that Saul didn't even know who the seer was. He, he just knew him as the seer. He didn't know his name. He didn't know what he looked like. He was only known by reputation. So Saul, Saul draws nigh to this guy. He comes up to this guy, Samuel, and he says, tell me, I pray thee, where's the seer's house? I'm looking for the seer. Do you know where the seer is? And Samuel tells him in verse 19 and 20, it's me. He says, Saul, and said, I am the seer. Go up before me unto the high place, for ye shall eat with me today. And tomorrow I will let thee go and will tell thee all that is in thine heart. And then he says, Oh, yeah, and, and as for thine asses that were lost three days ago, set not thy mind on them, for they are found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on thee and on all thy father's house? Don't worry about the donkeys. They're taken care of. They've been found. It's been three days. They've been found. You just keep your focus on what's going to be happening tonight and tomorrow morning. Stay with me, eat with me tonight, and you can leave for home tomorrow morning. And he says, the reason being is because you are the one who is the desire of all Israel. The desire of all Israel is on you. Wow, what a day that would be, huh? You're just a guy out looking for your father's donkeys And then this guy comes up and says, oh, by the way, all Israel has been looking for you. You're something special. You're going to be the first king. Verse 21, Saul answered and said this, Am not I a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribes of Benjamin? Wherefore then speakest thou so to me? I'm I'm like the least of my family. Seer. And my family is the least of Benjamin, seer. And Benjamin is the least of the tribes, seer. What do you mean all Israel has been looking for me? I'm nothing. My family is nothing. My tribe is nothing. Go back to the end of the book of Judges and you'll find out that the tribe of Benjamin had been nearly wiped out, if you recall, in the book of Judges. And they were about 400 years removed from that near destruction down to just 600 men they would have certainly been the smallest of the tribes and they may have still had a pretty bad reputation in israel that they couldn't shake off because of the wickedness that almost caused them to be destroyed verses 22 and 24 we finish our inspection of the verses samuel took saul and his servant and brought them into the parlor and made them sit in the chiefest place among them that were bidden wow so now he's sitting, there's a bunch of people there, they're there with Samuel the seer, and, and Saul is placed as the chief. He's, he's got the, the chief seat, which were about thirty persons. And Samuel said unto the cook, Bring the portion which I gave thee, which I said unto thee, set it by thee. And the cook took up the shoulder and that which was upon it, and set it before Saul, gave him the choice piece. And Samuel said, Behold that which is left. Set it before thee and eat. For unto this time hath it been kept for thee since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul did eat with Samuel that day. Samuel said, I've been waiting for you, Saul. And here's proof that I've been waiting for you. I've been saving this special piece of meat for you. I've been saving it. I told them you're coming. I told them this seat is reserved. This food is reserved. And it's reserved for someone special. And Saul gets to sit in that seat. The food is placed before him. And this is like, wow, what is going on here? Now, we're going to find out later, next week in particular, what's going on. But it's this reality that I speak of in the application today. Earlier in the service, we saw through prophecy, a prophecy in Genesis 49, that God's perfect will for the nation was that the scepter would not depart out of Judah. Remember that. That God's will through prophecy for the nation is that Judah would, would have the line of kings. Now remember, Saul is not of Judah. Saul is of Benjamin. We immediately see, based upon the person that God gave to Israel, that God is not acting in His perfect will here it's contradicting that which he prophesied would come to pass. Israel's demand for a king here in First Samuel 8 is a demand that rests outside of God's perfect will. So God goes outside of Judah to find a king that would fulfill Israel's needs. But for all that Saul represents the culmination of Israel's rebellion, do you know what? He was still a kingly man. God didn't reach into the trash heap of Israel and find the guy with, you know, 12 toes and three arms and, you know, needed glasses to be able to see in front of him and be like, okay, here's king. Take, take a king. He gave Israel a strong, kingly, goodly man. He gave them what they were asking for. He gave them someone that would be a good representative of them before the nations from a physical, material standpoint. May I give us some perspective here? Even though an earthly king was outside of God's perfect will for this time, God didn't just throw up his hands and say, fine, I'm done with you. You're on your own. God still actively found them a king. They rejected God, but guess what? God had not rejected them. They rejected God, but God had not rejected them. God's divine mercy above measure absolutely enveloped them. And while the consequences of their sin would indeed be dramatic, we're not talking about a a man who's going to be great for Israel in the future. But we are talking about the very pinnacle of what they were asking for. The goodliest, greatest, strongest, kingliest man they could find. But there's never a point in any of these events where it can be said that God had ever forsaken his people even in the midst of their apostasy. And with this thought in mind, I'd like us to consider two points of application this morning with regard to the events of 1 Samuel 9. And the first bears warning. This is not going to be my final thrust this morning, but it's something that needs to be said. The first warning is this, that God's hand of provision does not inherently mean that you're in God's perfect will. We've talked about God's permissive will. When, when God has made his will known to you and you go outside of that and you're asking for something of God and there's that chance that he might just give it to you and that's kind of almost a scary thing. That there's a chance that, might, that God might actually give you what you want when, when it's not what God wants for you. And remember, we're not talking about when you don't know what God's will is. We're talking about when you do know what God's will is and you've sought to go outside of God's will and God's allowing you to go there. When you are in that place of God's per- permissive will, you might see things start falling into line. Oh, that's coming to me. Oh, that's coming to me. Oh, this is coming to me. But the fact that God is allowing this provision, the fact that you, you, things are starting to fall into line, does not inherently mean that, that... That's not an inherent sign that you are in God's perfect will. If you have offended the scriptures... If you've offended what you know God wants you to do and then, then things start falling in line, you can actually be, be even more sure that, that, that you've fallen right into God's permissive will. That, that God is now kind of setting you on that other path and the doors are going to open on that path, but that's not necessarily the path that He would have intended for you. As we read the passage today, it's unmistakable that God is the one who is providing this king for Israel. He had so, uh, Samuel... Choose him. He said the day before Saul arrived, there's coming a man that will be the king in Israel. God chose him. And if we had not just read in chapter 8 that God told them that this, this direction you're going in is utter rebellion, if God had not utterly condemned their demand for a king, if we did not know the prophecy in Genesis 29 that the kings were supposed to come out of Judah... We would have read 1 Samuel 9 and said, wow, look at God provide a wonderful king for his people. But we don't do that because we have read 1 Samuel 8 and we have read Genesis 49 and we do know that in fact, though God is providing, this is not God's perfect will. And just because God is merciful and he opened a door for the provision of his people in in their rebellious request it did not inherently mean that this was God's best and this was God's perfection. The fact of the matter is, even as believers, when we ignore the will of God as revealed in the Scripture, in any number of areas, our life might still find provision. But just because God has allowed you to have something in His mercy, just because God has given you a Saul, that does not mean that God didn't have something better for you. Doesn't mean he didn't have a David waiting around the corner. I had a wise pastor once tell me, we were talking about a man who he came. Uh, There's a man that came up to me and he made a bad decision, and he told me I have peace about this decision, and I know it's the right decision because I had peace. And I was telling this to a pastor friend, and the pastor friend looked at me and he said. You get temporary peace when you're jumping out of the, fire, the frying pan and into the fire. For the moment that you're in the air, you do feel that peace. You've made the, the decision to jump out of the frying pan and you feel peace for a moment only to fall back into the fire. He said, peace can be deceptive. The, 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 the idea of provision, the idea of prosperity can be deceptive. When we're doing something and it's not in line with God's Word and it's not in line with God's will and He's revealed to us from the Scriptures that it's wrong and yet we obstinately choose to do it and when we make that decision we feel that peace but it's not inherently the peace of one who has found God's peace it's the peace of one who has made a decision but that decision is hurling you back into the fire. And that's Saul. Saul is that temporary respite between the rebellion of Israel and the consequences of their rebellion. Last week we talked about Christian involvement in government. And I don't think there's anyone who can deny that God has used things, as we talked about, say, the welfare state, that God has used the welfare state to provide for His children. But what if, just maybe, government assistance is God's Saul? What if, just maybe, government's assistance is God's way of giving us what we need, but not what could have been if we would trusted Him a little bit more, as we apply what we learned last week. We apply this truth to marriage, to family, to jobs, how we spend our money, what we do as a church, how often we go to church, when we go to church, where we go to church... In each and every area of our lives, God wants to be a part. In His Word, it is sufficient to guide us and direct us into the, 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 the major direction of our choices. He's not inherently going to tell us what to put on in the morning or where to go uh, during our day, but, but His Word is a fantastic template with which to guide us and to, to give us the flexibility to, to operate within. And when we ignore God's Word and we avoid God's will and choose our own path as God's children, we might still often find ourselves in a place of some provision. But what if that provision is is a Saul? What if that provision is, is God's mercy in spite of our rebellion and certainly not as good as what He might have blessed us with if we had waited, if we had aligned ourselves with His perfect will? In fact, this is one of the primary lessons concerning Israel's history, that for all that God blessed them with, their refusal to fully submit themselves in faith limited God in His divine ability to bless them as He wanted. In Psalm 78, verses 40 and 41, God is giving through the psalmist a recap of Israel's history. And He says this in verses 40 and 41, How oft did they provoke Him that's Israel provoking God in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. That God had amazing plans for them. He wanted to get them into that promised land. And when they got to the land, they sent in ten spies, excuse me, twelve spies, and ten of them came back and said, There are giants in the land, don't go there. And two came back and said, It's a beautiful land, it's everything that God wanted. And the people said, Let's go back to Egypt, and they limited. God, and you know, God still provided for him Forty years in the wilderness, their shoes didn't wear out, manna at their doorstep every morning, drinking from the rock, and that rock was Christ. But it was limited compared to what it could have been. It was a Saul. It was. It was the second best. It was the alternatives. In Matthew 23:37, Jesus said the same thing to Jerusalem, to Israel. As He's going into that final Passover before His death, He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. How many times would I have poured out my fullest blessing upon you, but you were not willing, and so now you must go through a process of chastening before I can give you what I've promised you. And maybe it is with us as well, as individuals, as families, as a church, that parts of God's Word, which we have chosen to conveniently ignore, or the clear elements of God's will, which we have forsaken for the convenience of expediency, have not necessarily brought us to a place of suffering or loss, but maybe they have just brought us to a Saul. Maybe our foray into the permissive will of God hasn't brought us to a Balaam moment where we try to speak against God, we speak for God, and then God sends his armies and we die. But maybe our foray into God's will is placing us in a Saul moment where we see something and it's goodly and it's beautiful and it's strong and it's everything we would have thought it should be. But it's actually not God's first choice. And Israel knew that. God told them. See, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the clear will of God. And God told them, this is not my best for you. And they said, we're going to do it anyway. God's provision, yes. God's merciful provision in the face of lack of faith, not God's perfect provision in response to faith. So our first application, God's hand of provision does not inherently mean that you are in God's perfect will. But second, I hope that this second observation will be of tremendous encouragement to us. Stepping out of God's perfect will does not doom you to divine rejection. Mercy beyond measure Not every foray into the permissive will of God ends in a Balaam. Sometimes it ends in a Saul. Now, this should encourage us because none of us is perfect. Humans are fickle. We're fickle by nature. We are sheep. Christians are fickle creatures with two distinct natures. We have the spirit within us that's fighting for one thing, and we have the flesh within us that's fighting for another. And that battle is very real. And that battle should never bring us to condemnation. That's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8. But in Romans chapter 7, he does remind us that the battle does indeed exist. That we are fighting. And, you know, for all that we would wish we could, we don't necessarily always win that battle, do we? The flesh sometimes wins. And so our wanderings away from God's perfect will do not always end in disaster or ruin or loss. Sometimes they just end in less than God's best. May I take you to one passage? I'd like you to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. Turn to Psalm 107. My wife and I read the Bible together at night. And we were reading in Psalm 107 last night. And when I read it, it just perked my heart and my mind as, Pertaining to what we were talking about today, and I'd like to read it for you. It's a psalm about Israel's rebellion and God's mercy. O oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a solitary way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Look at verse 6. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distresses. Take note of that. You're going to see it four times. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city of habitation. God has God has helped them. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness, such as sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, being bound in affliction and in iron, because they rebelled against the words of God and condemned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore He brought brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help them. Then they cried unto the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and brake their bands in sunder. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in sunder. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their d- trouble, and he saveth them out of their distresses. That's three times we've read that now. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. They that go down to the the sea in ships that do business in great waters. These see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He commandeth and raiseth the stormy winds which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Here it is. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So He bringeth them unto their desired haven. O oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders. He turneth river into a wilderness and water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of them that dwell therein. He turneth the wilderness into a standing water and dry ground into water springs. And there He maketh the hungry to dwell that they may prepare a city for habitation. And sow the fields and plant vineyards which may yield fruit of increase. He blesseth them also so that they are multiplied greatly and suffereth not the cattle to decrease. Again they are uh, minished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow. He poureth contempt upon princes and causeth them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet setteth he the poor on high from affliction and maketh him families like a flock. The righteous shall see it and rejoice, and all iniquity shall stop her mouth. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 107 is a testimony to the reality that even man in all of his transgression, even man as he wanders away from the Lord, finds a God that when they cry unto Him in their trouble will save them out of all their distresses. That God is a God of mercy. That He is ever merciful. And we can rest in the reality that in each of these times in our lives where we wander outside of the perfect will of God, God is bigger than our rebellious propensities. Saul may not have been God's perfect choice and certainly we should never be content with Saul. But Saul was a reflection of God's purposed kindness towards his people, even in the midst of their rejection of his authority. And as we close today, it's my prayer that we would allow the Holy Spirit to search and to comfort our hearts with these thoughts. To search our hearts first, to see if there are areas in our lives where we have been living a Saul existence, where we have been satisfied with the Saul, knowing what God's Word says, but not really bringing ourselves to trust it enough to accept God's perfect will or God's perfect provision. And so we step outside into some degree of His permissive will. And maybe we, we're not in a Balaam area of God's permissive will, maybe just a Saul. But if there are areas of Saul in our lives, you know, we would do well to cry out unto the Lord and and, and to realign ourselves with His perfect will. But I pray as well that God would comfort our hearts this morning. That as we considered the permissive will of God and even considering it more this morning, that as we've considered God's election and our purpose, that we would not feel as though God's just standing over us waiting for us to fail. 'Cause that's not the God that we serve. We serve a God that is so much bigger than our mistakes. We serve a God who won't simply allow us to wander blindly into his permissive will, wander blindly into chastening. He will reveal himself and his will to us. And then when we do still decide to rebel against him, he's merciful, he's long suffering. He provides us all not necessarily so that we'll get comfortable, but certainly, patiently, lovingly, seeking to guide us back into His perfect will, if we will only trust Him as we ought. Let's close in prayer.